like I know you're all about liquid death. I'm not into it. The Grim Leafer? It's silly. This is an iced tea. <laughs> Look, am I going to get this or am I going to get an Arizona iced tea? I'm going to get this. No, you're going to get Arizona iced tea for the nostalgia. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like, a lot just, of nostalgia. I just ordered, um, like, play, uh, where are they go? Oh, sh- uh, <laughs> you can All the that. curses. Okay. Yeah. Bleep, bleep. What's the name of the cooler company? Why am I blanking? Yeti? No. The Igloo Playmate Coolers. Okay. They released like a vintage line. You had to have it. They're so fun. They're so 80s. Nostalgia is always good, right? It's powerful. powerful. Nostalgia, very, very powerful. Um, For me in particular, yes. For you, that's what I was going to say. Not for me, not for anyone else, but for you, Sylvie. Nostalgia, (laughs) very powerful emotion. I think you are (laughs) feeling. You can be both nostalgic and futuristic. And I think I I tend to gravitate way more towards... Just nostalgia. The future. (laughs) Wow. Okay, you heard it here first. (laughs) Sylvie Lubau. (laughs) No, no, no. No, no. Let's... We'll get rid of that. Should we start the show? (laughs) Yeah. Well, hello and welcome to Talking to Live with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I am joined... By the one, the only, the podcast producer extraordinaire. She loves Brooklyn more than anyone else. Well, that's not true. She loves Brooklyn. It's Sylvie Lubau. Sylvie, how are you? <laughs> great intro. Great intro. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm great. Um, you know, you and I, the energy right now is kind of like, it's like everyone's <laughs> been drinking uh, liquid death iced teas. It's just really <laughs> a lot of energy. And I think that's because we had a great guest, Brian Balfour, who's the CEO of Reforge, came on the show. Really great interview. We just finished recording. Jumped right into the intro. This is the magic of how the show works. This is the magic. This is the magic. So you're hearing us now. Soon you'll hear us and you'll hear Brian. But Sylvie, we've got a lot of energy. We're excited. We're drinking um, iced teas. (laughs) What's got you talking too loud today? Um, I was thinking I have like three. So how about I I I tell you three and then you pick. Oh, perfect. I can't wait. Okay. One Mm. is an injury at a concert. One is Women's World Cup. And one is Tour de France on Netflix. I think I have to go Tour de France on Netflix. I knew. I knew. Because it hits me with the drive to survive, but I I haven't actually watched it. You know, but we talked a little bit about it in another episode. So I I have to hear what happened. As the F1 fan, I knew you were going to pick the last one. Um, So... Because you got me all like you've been talking about F1 so much. And then I think somebody who came on the show, maybe Noah, talked about the Tour de France uh, Netflix show. I was like, why not? Let's just see. Let's just see what all this is about. It was insane. I am hooked in a way I wasn't expecting. That's amazing. And like blew through the series just like total binge it is astonishing what these bikers can do the peloton is terrifying now i'm like oh i know where you got your company name peloton but (laughs) the peloton is a terrifying sport yeah it's so scary yeah there were just I, I I don't even have words i mean the footage the video footage that they got i was like how did you guys get this footage yeah and like the characters the people 
you really like you really fall in love with them you really root for them yeah like their plight is your plight and yeah and yeah so i see now are you interested because it's like the people at the top of their game and so you're like what are the little things that they do or is it just that the storytelling is so good that these little moments in their life that show up in the show are like the little drama that we all feel every day it's, it's just being shown to us and it's, and it's also i assume beautifully shot in the way that like drive survivors yeah probably the latter like the storytelling is so good but I, when i when i say storytelling it's like it's all the elements right it's the video footage it's the music mm. it's the people that they follow and their individual sort of stories it's like all of that combined because i actually think when you zoom out a lot of what they said was kind of repetitive like there's a lot of like oh this hill is the hardest hill and like mm -hmm. this leg of the race is the hardest race but it yeah. didn't bother me like i was like i don't care because it, it just all came together in such a compelling way. That's awesome. So that's what has me talking too loud. That's great. What's got you talking too loud? Well, I'll try to keep it on theme. So um, I took my kids and we went with some friends to this place called Seekonk Grand, Grand Prix, which is like a go-karting for kids like thing. Yes. And uh, after I went to the Montreal F1 race, like, you know, I now have all this Aston Martin gear. So I have like the Aston Martin jersey and I have like the puffy vest and I have like oh, yeah. the hat and you I, gotta ha break I just out have the a swag. lot of swag. Well, so obviously I, I decided we're going to the Seacon Grand Prix. Like I gotta, I gotta get my <laughs> swag on. I put on my Jersey. I put on my Aston Martin hat and the girls each have an Aston Martin hat. So they're yes. wearing it and it's fun. And we do the go-karts, whatever. But the funniest part of going was, <laughs> you know, it's like the three of us walking around and we're all wearing the Aston it says Aston Martin F1 team. And someone says to Zoe, who's my seven-year-old, they're like, I have to ask you a question. She's like, uh-huh. She's like, is your dad an F1 driver? <laughs> oh, and Zoe's like, no, he just goes to stadiums a lot. That was like her <laughs> answer, which didn't satisfy this like kid. I, I should mention, she's probably like 15 or 14. It didn't satisfy him. So he comes up to me. He's like, I have to ask you, are you an F1 driver? <laughs> like uh no do i look like an f1 driver he's like well i guess if you're not a driver you look like an enthusiast <laughs> i love that. and i was like yep i'm an enthusiast he's like great and then <laughs> when i told zan my wife she's like why didn't you just make this kid's day like why why didn't you just say that you're the f1 driver like <laughs> he would have been so happy it was just funny to me to think that like an f1 driver would go to a go-kart thing yeah. And they'd bring their kids and they'd all wear the gear. It Listen, was just so funny. F1 people, they're just like us, right? They're just like us. They're That's just true. Like us. They're just like us. <laughs> um, well, someone else who's just like us, who we think is great and uh, has a lot of stories to share and a lot of insight to give, is our guest today, Brian Balfour. So let's jump into that interview with Brian. Ryan, so good to see you, man. Thank you for coming on the show. How are you? I am doing excellent. Thanks for having me. That's great. Uh, I'm super excited that you're here, and uh, I want to know what's going on in your world. I'm really excited about what you're up to. But first, as you know, this show is called Talking Too Loud because when I get excited, I cannot control the volume of my voice. Uh, this is a real thing. And we love to start the show by asking our guests, what has them excited? What's got you talking too loud these days? 
What has got me talking too loud these days? Okay, so... Uh, well, the latest thing right now is like all this superconductor stuff. I don't yeah. know. Have you gone down that rabbit hole? I'm not super deep on this one. I mean, I'm watching it and I'm like aware and I, I understand that there's like massive implications, but maybe you can kind of like catch us oh, all God. up. Where are we oh, at? No. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. You're exposing my uh, you're exposing my weakness. So it's such an <laughs> I, I swear there has to be people writing the movie script right now about this yeah. thing in case it actually works out. So from my understanding, and oh my God, I am entering territory that is <laughs> not even close to my strength right now. That's what we want. So that's, okay. that's what we're looking for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so part of the reason that this is so interesting is because of all the drama behind it. So apparently there was a scientist about um, 20 years ago that basically produced this uh, material um, on accident during one of their experiments. And then somehow, um, as they were like going through the process of trying to replicate and stuff, they lost the sample, literally. So this yeah. guy, one of the core scientists, apparently spent the next 20 years of his life trying to reproduce what they had found, right? And so um, as a result, uh, they apparently... Uh, then reproduced it recently yeah. with a team of scientists. I don't know how many of them they were all. They were based in um, South Korea. And so I won't even try to pronounce the names. I will 100% butcher them. And even creating this was even an accident. Uh, apparently, like they produced this material. They bumped a table. It kind of cracked in half. And then all of a sudden, they, 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 it, it was, yeah. it was like literally like movie writing. I heard about shit. the cracking in half thing and I was like, this can't be real. And yeah. 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 So like a lot of skeptical. And then yeah. there's the drama about all the releasing the work, which was, uh, one of the scientists kind of went rogue and, uh, put together this really sloppy research paper, published it with two other scientists named because apparently oh, you can only have three people win the Nobel Prize. And then the rest of the team of scientists rushed to put their version together and kind of publish it. And it's kind of kicked off all of this all of this chaos. And that's why it's like all happening so fast and like haphazardly is the idea. Yeah, apparently they were trying to patent it and figure out the reproduction uh, of it and all of these pieces. But because one of these scientists in, in the group kind of unleashed the research in a little bit of a, a sloppy way, it kind of created this massive rush. So now you have all of these folks around the world that are trying to replicate this with varying results. But if they are able to reproduce it, you know, my understanding is like it would literally change. Uh, they call it the holy grail of material science because it would literally affect almost every part of our life if wow. they were able to do it. It's like, yeah, we're we're talking like room temperature superconductor, yeah. which means like there's a lot of energy loss in like basically everything, right? So like in how electricity gets through the grid and computers, like and the heat and like all this stuff. And we're saying that, in a world where there's room temperature superconductors, there's like no energy loss or like much less. Is that the, oh and then that God. just will basically remake everything. Right. Yeah. So basically, yeah, as electricity passes through anything, either like your electricity wire or through your electronics or all those types of things, you lose a bunch of energy that's kind of, yeah. you know, you typically produced in heat and there's all that energy loss. And so if you could like retool you know, all of our electronics and our grid and all these things with a room temperature, uh, like superconductor, the energy gain, 
you would have in the world just from that is absolutely massive, right? That doesn't even get into, you know, of course, people are kind of going off into the flying cars and uh yeah. um what's the hover skateboard from uh what is that back to the future back you the know, future, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah 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 which everyone <laughs> wanted that skateboard i i need it now yeah, yeah <laughs> maybe anyways i i think it i don't know it's just like it's it's super cool uh the superconductor is like super cool and uh it's also just totally outside my day to day and i need yeah, which is interesting yeah i need something to you know spur the brain cells because i've got two little ones a one and a three-year-old so my non-work time is you know spent baby talking and reading, yeah. reading children's <laughs> books uh and so at least this is a little bit uh something something extra that's cool you know i i noticed that too this funny vibe of like I feel like for a long time, there's been stuff in the media and news around like massive breakthroughs that then like don't happen. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's been a lot of many, many years ago. It's like, we're going to beat cancer now. It's like, oh, actually, we're not going to beat cancer. Or maybe we are, but it wasn't happening then. There's something interesting about the superconductor thing, which is that we're hearing the news and that people are actually putting it into practice. And then they're sharing what their learnings are on social. And then it's like this like, collective learning thing that's happening that yeah. I, I feel like I've noticed that seems so, I don't know, like optimistic and exciting and like different than like, here's one person doing the breakthrough and everyone's like, cool. There's like not actually trying to do it. Like the fact that so people are trying to do it and sharing their examples and what's working and what's not is like, it's like the whole, anyone who's involved in it collectively learning, which is like exciting and feels different. Yeah. It feels more like a more positive version of what we all went through with COVID where obviously yeah. there was a huge rallying cry to figure out like different things around COVID, but it was just such a political negative thing. Yeah, yeah. And this feels much more like the positive, uh, optimistic, uh, version of that. So, um, anyways, that's got me excited, but I've actually been feeling pretty down about my experiences with AI. Almost everything I'm trying these days, and I'm trying to try something new every single day, it just feels yeah. like consuming empty calories, right? It has it has that novelty effect. And then yeah. I don't know. I just I keep I keep coming across these products which I feel like, oh my God, this would be magical. And then the net result of it feels it's so easy to overpromise with this stuff. It's crazy. Right. Yeah, uh, which is just going to fatigue. It's just going to fatigue everybody very yeah, quickly. Yeah, then you're just like, yeah. what's real and what's not? Like, you know, and then when there is real stuff that adds value, I think it's going to look the same and have the same marketing, the same messaging as everybody else. And so it's just even harder to differentiate. It's an interesting problem. Yeah. Um, well, look, like, I mean, we're talking about collective things that are happening in the world, like collective learning, our experience with this. Let's pivot. Let's talk about Reforge. So... You're the founder and CEO of Reforge, and you've helped a lot of people learn about growth and many other things and done that in big groups and small groups in different ways. But for those people who aren't familiar, can you give us the quick overview of who you guys are, what you do, and where the idea came from? Sure. Um, so the quick history is uh, prior to Reforge, I was VP of growth at HubSpot. Um, while I was there, I saw my team just want to engage in different things around professional development. And they would commonly ask me about recommendations of things to do. I would try to figure out what to recommend them. I tended to not find anything that felt super relevant to what we were working on or coming from the right 
people or place. And so I decided I was going to create something on the side. I had been writing a blog for quite a few years. And um, Andrew Chen, who was working on growth at Uber at the time, uh, was doing and playing with something similar. So we just partnered up and uh, we created the MVP of our first course. It was a cohort-based course before that term even existed called the Growth Series. And it just went way better than expected. Uh, just It felt like some of the strongest product market fit I had felt um, from all the things that I've tried in my career. Mm. And we had a couple thousand applications. We did a million bucks on that prototype version. Um, we had pretty good NPS results afterwards. And so that led me to go focus on it full time. What it's grown into, um, our history has really been about growing and scaling these cohort-based uh, programs, all created, all led by experts in the space. And by experts, we mean actual operators, actual VPs, C-level folks who have been on the front lines of some of these fastest-growing companies. And um, what we've started to transition into with some of our new products is uh, much more of a uh, network and marketplace around our professional lives. And I know that's very vague, but we've just started landing some like new products and some new pieces around this that I'm pretty excited about. But most of the history has been around these very deep, very intense cohort-based programs um, created and, and led by experts. And I know you've had a pretty wild ride. I think you're still on it. Uh, I, I mean, as I'm I, still I mean, on you're it. You're definitely on a wild ride. But can you tell us a little bit about, you know, I know you had massive growth. Yeah. You raised a lot yeah. of money through COVID and then like things got hard. Can you just bring us a little bit into what that was like? What yeah. happened? So for the first four years of the business, um, we bootstrapped and we bootstrapped to about 10 million in revenue company was highly profitable uh at the time and Congrats. That's, i mean that's amazing um yeah, yeah and I, I think you know at the time I, there was a key decision that uh we had to make which was are we going to pull the trigger on going down the venture path or are we going to keep this a bootstrapped business and at the time we saw this opportunity to uh, potentially use these courses, these education components to back into a new type of, of network. Uh, we, we started to really formulate this much bigger vision. And, and oh, by the way, like everything we were doing just kept working. It was one of those lucky, lucky pieces. And uh, at the time, I decided to uh, venture fund um, the business. And those first four years were hard. I solo founded the business. You know, Andrew was uh, working on growth at Uber at the time, and then he trans transitioned to Andreessen Horowitz, and he was a great early creator and partner with me and is still heavily involved in the business today. But um, solo founded the business. The team was super scrappy. And, you know, the big kind of first dip on this roller coaster was more of a personal dip, which is um, in 2018, a few years into the business, we were uh, headed into one of our cohorts. I was still creating all the programs. I was still teaching all the programs. We had two weeks to go and I was still finishing creating an entire program that we were about to start in a week and to teach it. Oh and um, unfortunately, my wife and I had a, um, a family tragedy, which we lost uh, our daughter at birth. And that was, you know, just like uh, dropping an atomic bomb in the middle of everything. And 
Um, in addition to that, uh, we had a couple team members. The team was less than 10 people at the time. Same time, also have family tragedies of their own versions. And so here it was like half our team going into, you know, these revenue producing periods, which by the way, like when you're a bootstrap business, if we didn't run that thing, right? Like we wouldn't have money to keep running the business. Yeah, 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 it was, it was absolutely nuts. And so we, we ended up coming together and figuring out a a solution. We, We ran it, we figured out the programs, all that kind of stuff. But that, that time period was a little bit of a dark, days for me in the sense that you know i think with like something the darkest like, days i mean i know you yeah. just did a whole yeah. podcast on this but like that's i mean first of all i appreciate you sharing it i just want to say that like i think you know it's not till you have kids and you understand how often like things don't go the way you want yeah <laughs> you right. know like there's a lot of people having yeah. miscarriages who are like who do i talk to about this like it's a actually extremely common thing sadly yeah in our world and I, I just i just really appreciate you sharing that story because i think like there's so many people who go through moments like this and they don't have other people to look to or other people to talk to or like the network or the confidence because it, it, it's just it's so devastating and so just yeah. like i i know that must have been unbelievably hard i'm sure you wanted to just give up well that was definitely the thing I went through. And so and my wife and I made a decision very early on that we wanted to talk about it openly, because to your point, it does happen way more often than people think. And so for folks who have or are experiencing something similar, feel free to reach out to me on on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to chat about it if it's something you also want to chat about. But yeah, like that was the period I was like, what am I doing with my life? Is this like yeah, what, what I actually want to be doing? Yeah. And, and yeah. you go through that whole process. And I did come out the other end of the process making the decision that this was what I wanted to do um, with my life. And that went partially into the venture back decision, which was like, all right, like if I'm going to dedicate myself to this, if I'm going to spend some time, I, I kind of want to choose um, a, like a big path. And so we did our series a 20 million. And at that time, the next decision was we transitioned from selling individual courses to a membership based model, like an all you can eat membership based model. And that like, unleashed another set of growth for the next couple of years. We went from zero to 30 million in ARR on that product in a couple of years. And so that was, it was both good and bad. Um, (laughs) We're actually still recovering from the bad elements of it, which are, (laughs) we, we probably pulled that trigger a little bit too soon because the team was so small at the time. We just basically were trying to keep up with the growth, but we took the bet knowing that once we did this, we had to also land additional pieces of the product to be a recurring business. Cause of course to be a recurring business, you need a decently high frequency of usage. It forces the, the, the recurring revenue, the recurring revenue model and courses by nature are not a recurring behavior. They are very episodic in people's lives. And we had all the ideas around the product and all that kind of stuff. But instead of being able to spend our energy on those pieces, we were literally just trying to keep up uh, with the growth. And that ended up being the big struggle. And that caught up with us. It always does. Yeah, it always can. It yeah. always does. And so uh, I'm, I'm screwing up the sequencing here. But um, because of that growth, we raised a pretty large series uh, B at the end of 2022. And then um, engagement, all those things were looking good, even though we hadn't landed those new product pieces. And then it caught up with us, like literally starting early 2023. The retention started to hit us. 
And then the macro economy was just like a giant dropkick to the face uh, in our category. Um, L&D budgets, really sensitive to it. One of our core audiences are marketers. That function got hit really hard. Um, so that happened. And then our first couple of shots on goal at uh, landing these new pieces of the product just uh, just didn't work for all sorts of reasons that we can talk about and all sorts of lessons learned. And so then that led into late last year where we had to make some really hard decisions. And um, I made huge cuts to the team. And part of that was just, hey, like we've got to shift out of the scale mindset back into a company that is acting and behaving and looks more like earlier stage landing yeah. new products. And so we did that through end of last year, Q1 that uh, has worked pretty well so far. And, um, and in the last few months, we've landed uh, essentially like three huge new products um, that all are playing out pretty, pretty well. So, you know, it's like, back up on the roller coaster, but I'm sure something else will, will hit us in the future. But that's been the journey. It's been a pretty long one for sure. Yeah. And I appreciate you actually taking us on the journey. Like it's really easy to only, it's, well, it's just really easy to talk about just the top of the roller coaster, you know, and going up. It's so easy. And like you always go down. Like I think that's something that's like very hard to see from outside a business. It's like they look like they're doing so great. It's like, well, you don't understand. Like, <laughs> well, there's people problems. There's pro projects that don't work. There's things that you do early and you can't figure out how to keep doing them. There's like mentality things that are like can totally change cultural things. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know about you all, but um, like we've certainly dealt with this a little bit among the team base too, which is, you know, when things don't work, all those things, you know, they're looking at everything else from the outside. And it feels like to them that, you know, everything is working for everybody else. And, yeah. and sometimes, you know, getting everybody to realize is like, hey, like, no, everybody's having hard times. These journeys are not smooth. All of those pieces, I, you know, I, I do end up spending a decent amount of my energy there. And I hate saying this, but now that I've been in the industry for 20 years, right? I've seen a few of these. I've seen a few of these like ups and downs and know it's a little bit more part of the journey, but certainly my younger self, my 25 year old self, I think would have that grass is greener constantly situation. So I don't know if yeah. you, you've all felt, you know, so. oh, I felt the same way. I mean, it's basically like, we're doing it this way, but like, look at all those other people, look at this recognition, look at this thing. And you're like, Oh, it must be so easy for them, you know, or like, Oh, I just heard this story of this crazy growth thing. Like, why isn't our growth as crazy as that? And then you go and you talk to, it's really an all on the nuance. Like you talk to people and you figure it out. It's like, Oh, like there's a, there's a, usually a reason why things are working like really well. And there's usually a lot of things that aren't working. It's, it's off, often like the growth stops you from fixing other stuff. I feel yeah. like, you know, do you, do you agree with that? It's just like, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, look, even during our good times, right, the, the, where I described like, everything we were doing was working, it was still hard, right? It was a yeah. grind, right? I, st I still felt yeah. stressed every single day, right? Because we were, once again, felt like we were on that hamster wheel. It's just that the type of problem shifts. And um, it does shift. Yeah. yeah. But there's like a mentality thing that I've noticed that's, you know, as we get bigger, when people come, they're coming into a large organization. And so there's just kind of like norms that you pick up from like how to get the job done. And we have parts of Wistia that have, 
you know, really, we've been building and evolving for 16 years. And we have parts that are three months old and that are six months old and right. nine months old. And it turns out the decision making and the speed and the responsiveness and like how you deal with bugs and even how you market the things is quite different. But it can be hard to get people to switch between that where we're having a conversation on one thing. It's like this completely tried and true at massive scale thing. And it's like, there shouldn't be a bug that's just being introduced that's like really impacting anybody there at all. Then there's another area that's like a very exciting and new and the rate of growth is very high. There are going to be bugs there yeah. and we have to find them and we have to deal with them. But that shift is kind of like, it's, it's kind of hard to live with both at once. It's hard to live with both at once because I find people who love that like early thing and they don't like the scaling, like really planned out, you know, farther reaching thing um, and vice versa, where it's like, you're telling me I need to solve a problem, but I can't solve it perfectly. Like I was just <laughs> in a meeting earlier today and someone was like, we have this problem. Like we could, and then someone else gave an offer of a solution. Like, well, that's only going to solve 50% of the problem basically. Yeah. And it's like, actually I would love if we solve 50% of the problem right now in one day, that will be very good for us because we can solve the other 50% <laughs> later. Yeah. This was the lesson I learned at HubSpot and relearned the hard way with Reforge, which was I was brought into HubSpot to help them expand from a um, one product company to a multi-product company. And something I think they did really well that I underappreciated at the time was that they chose a small team of folks to go after this second product. They partitioned them off from the rest of the company. This was like their first really big new new product expansion. They hand selected the folks who were particularly like well suited for that early stage, which is just much more constant change, way more ambiguity involved, like all those pieces. And then additionally, they matched the resources to the state, the match the resources and measurements of success to the stage of the initiative. So, and this was partially Darmesh's, you know, angel investing background as well, which yeah. is we initially talked about it as, hey, this this new product, we're we're giving it a seed funding this year. Enough funding for a small team to to go out. And then we would come back a year later and we would quote unquote pitch for our series a right for the next level of funding to expand the team and the measurements of success we were talking about were were kind of aligned to that and we we kept doing that for a little bit until they started to roll it back into the company and then i think at reforge the hard thing for us was when we started those new initiatives those new product initiatives um we didn't really partition it off from the rest of the company we didn't give as much thought to uh, the people we were selecting. It had nothing to do with the quality of person. It's just like different people are suited for different stages different things, of projects yeah. uh, uh, differently. And as a result, it just like, just like too many people got onto the project, too many voices. It slowed it down. We weren't looking at the measurements of success the right way. And so we had to hit the hard reset button on it. Um, and at, funny enough, Wistia was part of that reset button, which was when we did it, we took the mentality of like, we are going to think about this group of people as an early stage startup. So when we got together in person, we didn't spend a bunch of money renting office space. We reached out to friends like you to get free office space, what a startup would do. <laughs> and you all were nice enough to give us that space on that journey. But it was even small things like that, that 
ended up being really important to the success of hitting that reset button. I, I have a question in there on the resources part. When you're saying like, all right, create the different team with their own resources and the people who have like, you know, their mentality way of working is very early stage, which basically is like you learn something new, hopefully every day, and that might affect you do the next day, right? Did that include for the HubSpot example, or do you think it should include in general, not just like the people building the product, but also the people supporting and selling it? Uh, oh, yeah, 100%. So I, I actually think that the biggest difference has come down to um, the amount of change you are comfortable with in the amount of future ambiguity. I tend to find that yep. folks that are more well-suited for the scale stage want to think their way out of the problems. And the early stage folks uh, are like, I'm just going to build and try this thing <laughs> and, and do it. And they're okay with throwing away work and all of those types of pieces. They have zero hesitation around that. And they tend to be more generalists uh, who can go from idea to execution on their own. But this this kind of comes at the macro level too, which was the first time around, we did what every VC was recommending, right? Which was, you know, choose an appropriate burn number, you know, for the stage of your business and then optimize towards that. And what that misses yeah. is like, we had such a big macro shift in this market that a lot of companies, they basically needed to downshift an entire gear, right? And that was us as we needed to downshift from pure on scale mode to slightly earlier stage. And so when you do that, you actually have to ignore the burn numbers a little bit, especially if you have the money. You have to look at, okay, where these bets that I'm taking in my business, where are they at in the maturity of their life cycle? And if I just looked at that bet, right at that stage, what would be the appropriate amount of money to burn per year? And when we looked at it that way, it was like, yeah, even though we've got this $33 million historical business and all these other things, these bets are at the seed stage. And as a result, only justify a certain amount of burn. And as a result, we ended up at a totally different place when I went through that thought process, uh, which which led to our second round of changes. And now we are in a way healthier place uh, as a result of, of those things. But I've been through that same conversation with a bunch of other founders who just ended up in a similar situation. So I think this is a really interesting conversation because if you grow a company and it gets bigger, you're probably going to expand the footprint of the product. You get into other markets, other spaces, that's pretty normal. But when you do that, those things are inherently early stage and they need to be managed differently. And I feel like a lot of people who don't figure this out end up acquiring their way, right? Because it's like, you cannot get the fit to go. And so you look and you're like, oh, well, here's another business that's very small startup, but they've actually got traction and they're growing. Like I will get them because they figured it out and I will try to fit it into the mold. And it's something we've been doing, right? Um, here in the last couple of years. And it's been really like eye-opening to see it because you realize how many decisions and how many little things exist to have you operating at scale versus having you operating and building something brand new. And I feel like that juxtaposition is just very interesting because uh, I didn't expect the difference to be that great. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I learned a lot from 
you and uh, and Brendan, and I don't know how much you want to talk about our what is it, nacho tacos? Is that where we went? Nacho taco, nacho <laughs> taco. Yeah, <laughs> no, we can we can get into it. Let's do it. I mean, you you all went through your uh, a different type of gear shift, right? And I don't yeah. remember all the details in the context of like what led to that gear shift among you know yeah, the product can, engine design. Yeah, I can paint that picture, yeah, a little bit, and then you can pull it from there. But yeah, basically, we decided in late 2020 that like talking to customers that we need to broaden a lot of the problems we can solve with the product. And so instead of predominantly being hosting management analytics, like we need to help with making videos. We need to help with repurposing videos. We need to help with live streaming. And this is something that customers have asked us for a long time, but we always felt like we were staying focused on our strategy on like, okay, we're going to be this, this piece of the video stack and we'll just integrate with everything else. And what we saw is as things get busier, people want to save time. There's like an opportunity to be more seamless. Like we should, we should really invest in this and really change the product. And that's what happened. We've launched all these record and edit and all this stuff, which is really exciting. But we to do it, we needed to be less profitable. So we had to hire and we decided to hire a lot of people. We more than doubled our product and engineering organization in a year. And we had never inflicted that much pain and change on ourselves, uh, <laughs> being <laughs> not in direct. And as we did, we're like waiting for it to just go faster. You know, we built all these sub teams that are built, you know, there's an edit team, there's a recording team, there's a lot. And it was just, Mm -hmm. we weren't getting there. And the problem was we had all of these meetings and structure set up to provide feedback on people's roadmaps, on teams' roadmaps. Mm -hmm. So everyone would come to these big meetings, they'd have their roadmaps. I'd be ready to ask my hard questions about like, why is this number one? And why is this number two? And why is this number three? And after the meeting, the afternoon, the day, whatever was done, I always felt productive. I was like, look at us. Like, <laughs> we're so good. Like, we're just, we're giving such great feedback. Yeah. Like, yeah. la, 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 la. And it wasn't changing. And we eventually lost the excuse of, hey, we haven't invested enough in this. We're quite clear we're investing enough. Why is it not working? And we, we eventually realized, what if, what if it's us? What if we've created a culture that is actually not rewarding the right things? And as we don't we realize all these things were basically set up to make sure that like we were de-risking as much as possible. So it's like that one, right. two, three, that ordering is like the whatever number one was always had a ton of research. It was very obvious, very basic, very foundational, should affect every customer. It was probably hard, but it's probably known. You know, it's gonna take two months to do, but like everyone could, yep, thumbs up. And what we never talked about was like maybe five to ten on the list. A lot of that stuff. There might be small amounts of research. There might be like customer conversations that came up, but the team workout might have a very high conviction or instinct that one of those things will work. Mm-hmm. And they were never doing those things. Mm. And so we said, this is on us. We're going to change the culture. It's about shipping much faster. That's what we're going to reward shipping quickly and learning. You are going to own your roadmap. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you feedback and advice and we feel like something's missing. We're going to mention it, but you get to make the call. And it was fine. I remember when we were talking to the PMs, I was like, are they going to like this? And they're like, we're going so slow. <laughs> yeah. Like, of course we want this. This is so great. And then it was two, like less than two months. And the pace of shipping went from like feeling very slow to it's still incredibly fast. So fast. I hear from other people like, is it too fast? Like, are we doing too much stuff? It was massive, massive cultural change. And that, I mean, mm-hmm. that's what we were talking about at Nako Taco. So it's like such yep. a, so enlightening to us to see this. Well, I think this goes back to, so that inspired a lot of some of the things that we did too, which is you not only have to align 
you know, the types of people and the resources and stuff to the stage of these initiatives, but you have to align the, the culture and the way of operating as well. Right. And so, you know, when you went through this expansion, many of these new product initiatives were probably very new. They were at the the seed stage. Right. And so it kind of goes back to like, well, what would a, what would a seed stage start do? Would we have all of this process? Would we have all these checkpoints, yeah. like all this kind of stuff? And it's like, <laughs> no, like, like all the, all those things kind of go away. And so we had, we did the same thing as like we not only aligned the burn, we aligned the people, we rewrote our operating values, a couple of them heavily inspired by some some of the things that you and Brendan shared uh, with me because it just resonated very strongly. And so we have a lot of evolution and a lot of continued improvement. But but same thing, I, I, I kind of went into it as like, I, I think the product engine design team's going to like operating this way, but not sure. And I think for them... It was like undoing a release valve. It was like a huge, uh, um, you know, they they, they kind of had some some things pent up essentially, and uh, and so I think that um, I think it was like well received. And so if if you're that's awesome sitting out there, thinking like you might have to do the same thing, just uh, n- know that it it's uh, a little bit easier on the other side of the change. That's awesome. I mean, I'm so glad that that worked so well. It's also, I was, as you're saying that, it made me think too about like culture is so important. It's really easy though to be in the culture and think it's good because it might have even gotten you to where you are, right? Like uh-huh, yeah, the culture yeah. that we're talking about for Wistia, like that's how we were able to scale so much with so little and be like so thoughtful and purposeful. And for you, it's like you guys scaled so fast, so rapidly, built this core thing. It was working until it wasn't. And I think mm-hmm. that's like the funny thing when you're in it. Because it's like all the evidence says what we just did is what we should keep doing. And actually, you have to change it. It's a hard, it's like a hard, just the, the historical bias is a hard one. It's uh, a hard one. It's a hard one to shake. And like, just it even took me a little while to shake myself out of it and look at it with a new new pair of glasses, a different set of lenses, essentially, to yeah. get to the... To, to like the brutal honest truth. And the hard part about that too is a lot of the people around you have the same kind of glasses on as you do. And so even kind of relying on outside opinions and, and other pieces is is a, is is a hard one. It is a hard one. I also think that it's like when I think back to, well, being the early stage, but even having early stage products now, if you have someone who also wants to operate the opposite way, like who wants to operate like you're at scale, that is, you know, I mean, you said this in the resourcing, but like that creates a lot more issues than you would think. <laughs> it's like, oh, they've done it before. And like, this will work. And it's like, they may have done it before, but they don't like this like ambiguity. Yeah. Or they don't like the speed of change, then they're going to really struggle. And it's actually going to hurt that team. So it's just an interesting thing. And now it's become clear to me. It's like, there's a reason why these companies at massive, massive scale, actually have all these different subcultures and things aligned. If you're doing it right, they're aligned to like the products they have and the skill they're at, what they're trying to do. And like, there should be unifying things, but it's going to change and evolve. We did. Yeah. I mean, our team at HubSpot, when we started, we definitely had a subculture internally, Um, but it's still roughly aligned to the macro culture and and the macro vision. And, um, and probably one of my mistakes at HubSpot is I didn't appreciate the macro culture they had set enough, right? And as a result, there were probably times and pieces that I was pointed a little bit in the opposite direction, cr- creating that friction. You're, you're talking. I was that yeah, person, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, C- yeah. Creating creating that friction versus appreciating uh, 
appreciating the macro set of values and things in history that they had already set up and but also respecting like hey we we are we are a different stage initiative and we have to do things a little bit differently um so uh, yeah uh, it's interesting observation on how people can complain about all the subcultures but actually there might be a reason they exist uh that that's helpful yes okay I want to also go a little bit deeper because I'm so excited about this product. So if you could just tell everybody what this is and then what are the insights that got you there? Yeah. Okay. So so first, the product is um, it's called Artifacts. It's a free product. You can go to reforge.com, sign up. And the easiest maybe analogy to explain is like a GitHub for everything that isn't code. Uh, so we have a bunch of folks on there that have published historical actual work, uh, product strategy, roadmaps, real analyses they've done, email flows, whatever it is. Uh, these aren't templates. They're, they're like the actual work that those folks created. And the whole concept is that you can come in, you can find things relevant to what you're working on so that you never have to start from scratch. There's so much wasted time of like starting from scratch on all these things that it's a problem that I'm very interested in solving uh, as part of it. And the funny thing is, is that for seven years, we got the same feedback from uh, every single Reforge cohort that we did. And that feedback was uh, loved the course, loved the content, loved the teacher, but I'm having trouble applying like these set of things to my job today. There was this gap between the learning and the actual application. And uh, we had a little bit easier time because we built these courses to be uh, more applicable to start with from compared to what you find out there. But we banged our head against that wall uh, for like, I don't know, like, se like seven years. We, we took a lot of like little shots on goal. Our first set of initiatives were like, well, maybe if we tweak this in the course, maybe we tweak that in the course, like all that kind of stuff. And it was just, it was a game of whack-a-mole. Like none, none of that stuff worked. And then we were like, okay, we've got to solve this problem with a totally different piece of our product. And that was the first uh, initiative that I talked about that we kind of didn't get off to the right foot. Uh, too many people, too many voices, not the right process, all of those types of things. And so that that ended up, you know, like petering out. And so we hit the reset button. I handpicked a small group of, of folks, uh, Dan Walchernock on the product side, uh, this woman, um, Allie on the design side, who's awesome, and one of our engineers, um, Jake Madden. And uh, we got that group together and we were like, all right, like, wipe the slate clean, you know, like sell them off for all the rest of the company, all these types of things. We had no idea what we were going to do, but um, I remember we were at a mini offsite in Fisherman's Wharf. Well, like I said, we were cost conscious. <laughs> Fisherman's Wharf of San Francisco at this like hotel in this like dungy hotel conference room. And we were just <laughs> looking over the shoulder of like all of the historical design explorations um, that the team had done. And there's mm. this one in there that was like the center of the screen was this like filled out analysis that we teach in one of our programs. And the whole exploration was like, well, what if we centered it around the actual asset rather than like the learning content? Um, and that just sparked literally in like 30 minutes, we ended up having a hundred, you know, post-it notes on the walls and the whiteboard. It was like, well, 
why doesn't this exist is like, well, the people have it. And then we like opened our notion folders and I was like, Oh, I could publish all 30 of these things. Right. Uh, and we just realized it solved, you know, it had the potential to solve this exact problem that we had been dealing with for seven years, which was rather than having to go through all of this content and then apply, you could literally just like search the thing that you were doing or the, the, the thing that you had to create find a bunch of those things and use them, use it to start as ingredients. Very similar to like what engineers do with open source code. And then we started to realize I had all of these other things that could go along with it, which was like, hey, actually publishing these things is way easier than somebody, you know, trying to write a huge thought leadership blog post. Like if anybody's been through that process, it starts to feel like mm -hmm. a full-time job. It's just like publish the work that like you've done in your career, right? But to your point, we didn't jump to our earlier conversation. We didn't jump to like, oh, this thing's going to work, like all that kind of stuff. We built some design prototypes, did some some validation. We then built out an MVP in code. We did waves of beta users kind of iterating and validating. And we, over the course of like six to nine months, we worked our way up to this release that you saw uh, that, that we we did a few weeks ago. And um, yeah, it's just hit, it's hit a chord. It's, it's really resonated with folks. So it's uh, exciting to see that. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, when I saw it, I just jumped in there and started instantly finding stuff that was like super valuable. And that doesn't happen every day. You know, back to when you're talking about like AI and over promising and over under delivering, um, it would be easy to look at this thing and be like, well, is there a lot of how useful is this to me? Like, well, Yep, there's a strategy doc. Yep, there's another. Oh, that's interesting. That's how they do their all hands. You know, it's just like very quickly getting value out of it, which is which is really awesome. I'm so excited for you and I'm so excited for this product. I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I think those moments are interesting. Which I had the same moment for myself, which was uh, as we were creating this thing, I found myself using it on a weekly basis. I used some of our early artifacts to inspire our values, use some of them that informed our operating cadence. I used Casey Winter's product review process from Eventbrite to redo the way that we do like feedback and like all, all of these types of things. And so um, I hadn't experienced that in a while because I had always been on the teacher side of, of the historical Reforge product versus the consumption side of things. And now all of a sudden I was on both sides of it and as you know, when you're the user of your own product, there's just some, the best something magical yeah. about that, right? And it's the best yeah. thing ever. Yeah. 100%. When you're using your own product and you actually are using it, yeah. you're just like, there's something is, there's in it that's like annoying. And it, you go from like reading, observing the pain that the customer's having to actually feeling the pain. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly it's like decision making is much easier. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, we must fix this. Look at all these examples. And I'm like, oh, wow, why is he so hopped up? I'm like, well, I'm using it. I'm actually, I'm actually yeah. using it. But, but really then there's cool. the dangerous line of that, of like when at some point that can become counterproductive, right? Cause you oh, start. For sure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I, we haven't reached that point yet, but uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you have, but like figuring out that line of intuition versus, you know, needing the research, I'm sure we'll, we'll hit that at some point. So I think we, yeah, we definitely like hit that point and then came back from it. And then like found with the new things we're doing that I would say we're not at that point yet, which is, which is good. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, it's like, I mean, we could get a whole other conversation about how much customer feedback to get and why you should never stop 
getting it, but you should constantly change how you get it as you skip. There's a, a whole thing there. Mm-hmm. But we are almost at time. So I have one last rapid fire section I want to do All with right, you, Brian. So I'm just going to ask you a bunch of questions. Um, shoot for like one sentence answers. Got one word answer. That's also This good. is hard for me, so, but I, I will do my best. <laughs> you can do it. I believe in you. It's, yeah. it's right. mostly about growth. It's like yeah. a growth oh. rapid fire. Okay, got it. All yeah. right. All right. Okay. Yeah. Ready. First question. What is the one growth tactic everyone should do? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> Your eyes just <laughs> Jesus, Come on. Uh, understand what drives word of mouth for your product. Okay, mm. I love that one. Um, what's the growth tactic people should eliminate? This is so hyper-dependent. Um, That's why we ask it. <laughs> I, I will not use the it depends excuse. I will, and I will answer this differently and say purely AI generated SEO content. It's garbage. Just don't do it. You might get the traffic, but you're not going to build the influence. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here first. Don't do it. Um, What's harder growing talent or growing a customer base? For me personally, it's growing talent. And I would probably say that's true for most folks. People are, (laughs) you know, like human beings are just complicated things. So, yeah. (laughs) Um, What's harder, getting new customers or retaining old ones? Oh, retaining old ones for sure. It's the hardest. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been so fun. Really feel like we could just keep going on many other topics, but we're going to save that for another episode. Um, where can people connect with you to learn more about you and Reforge? Just go to reforge.com. You can learn about the Artifacts product, our courses, and our team's product. Um, I also very sporadically blog uh, at brianbelfour.com. Um, I think I'm going to launch a podcast soon. We're kind of in the prototyping phase. So just you know, pay attention there. Or you can just follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter, all those places. Perfect. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Sylvia, I think you could tell that I was like both like really into that interview enough so that I learned some stuff myself. I took some notes of things. I'm I saw the note taking. I saw, saw, I saw it you happening. Po- you, you clocked it. You I clocked, clocked my note taking. Old eagle eyes. Old eagle eyes. And I had this feeling of like, I'm just, re- I'm ready to go for like another two hours. Like yeah. I'm ready to go way deeper, more topics, which is such a fun feeling to have. That was a great, great interview. It was amazing. And I totally agree. Like I was a captivated audience during that entire conversation. And I think, you know, part of it is that I was thinking like, Brian, he's a teacher, right? Like he's, he's taught so many people about growth marketing and just growth in general. And the way he explains things is actually like so interesting. Because I feel like you zoom in, hmm. you zoom out, you get both the small and big. And that's, I don't know, that was, I, that was just my observation. That's interesting that you, you saw that. Because I, I was just really thinking about, of course, like the really specific things we're doing and where they're working, where they haven't worked. And I, I think it was like that that part about culture is like a really interesting part of this because, you know, 
he and I have spent more time in the past talking about that cultural shift we did, which wasn't like a full company, hey, our culture is completely different at this moment, although we've done that in the past. But it was this idea of like matching culture and decision making to strategy, which also includes like when he's talking about like the how it's funded and um, what the expectations are for it. Like some of my biggest mistakes I can think of in the history of building Wistia, where we actually had a great idea for something and we didn't set it up the right way. So we held it to the wrong standard and mm-hmm. then thought that we had failed. And actually, you know, objectively, if you would go back and look at it and you looked at the numbers, like you weren't failing. That was actually what success looked like. It was just that success at the very beginning of something looks very different than success yeah. when something is being scaled. Yes, that was really interesting hearing both of you talk about, I don't know if you said it quite this way, but um, like partitioning sort of like sub teams and really treating those teams like their own mini startups and like how just that alone is such a mental shift and can like set companies up for for greater success, for understanding what that success looks like. So yeah, this was... Super cool. I want to check out artifacts. Um, you should. You'll find some good stuff on there. Some good artifacts. Some good oh, treasures. Yeah. So lots of treasures. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've seen the new Indiana Jones. Dial yet, of yeah, Destiny. A... I was going to yeah. go there too. Yeah. Were you really? I really was. I really was. <laughs> I almost said it. And then you said it. Did you like it? I did like it. I thought it was really fun. I thought it was fun too. I thought it was super fun. What I didn't yeah. like was the new Mission Impossible, but you know, another oh wow, another time we can talk about that. It's a whole other episode. I did really enjoy it, and so we're it's gonna oh you know, we're gonna wow yeah we're gonna have words discussion about that yeah we're gonna have words next talking too loud we're gonna Perfect. duke it out duke it out over Mission Impossible uh, Dead seven? Reckoning Part One is it seven um, seven yeah seven. sure yeah I seven. don't know yeah great I don't know I'm asking <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Please rate and review the show wherever you consume it. It helps get the word out there. If you have feedback for us, uh, a guest you think we should feature, you can, should always email us at ttlpod at wissy.com. And you can find both Sylvie and I on Twitter and also LinkedIn. I'm spending a lot of time on LinkedIn these days. Amazing. Bye now. Bye. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia, hosted by Chris Savage, produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day, executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.